0: Hey, good morning, church. This morning's reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. It can be found on page 1041 of the Black Bibles in your pews. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Father, we ask you now to help us so that as we consider your word, your spirit might be at work. If your spirit is not present, this will be dead print on the page. But if your spirit is present, this will be living and active to us. We will hear from God. We pray that the Holy Spirit himself would begin to cause our mind to imagine and wonder of the things that God has for us, the end that is to come, that the Spirit might whet our appetite today for a consideration of all things, the end of things, the the story you have for us, and that our hearts might grow in gladness as we consider the great things in the world to come. Help us, Holy Spirit, and draw us to the Father in a new way. Put new energy in these hearts of ours as we consider God. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight is game five of the NBA Finals. And I have to tell you, I have not watched a single minute of the entire season, not a single moment of the regular season. But these finals have really drawn me in. They've sucked me in so that I've watched every single minute. And, and to be honest, I think I know why it's because I'm a hater. I don't want LeBron James to win, and that's why I'm watching. Uh, it seems to me very obvious who you should root for. The Spurs seem like this humble, good guy team. The, the Heat seem like the bad guys. And, and if you're rooting for the Heat, that's fine. Maybe you grew up rooting for the Joker rather than Batman, or, or you're a fan of evil or something like that. That's, that's okay. I'm not here to judge. But, but here's the thing. I have to drive down to New York tonight, and so there's a good chance that I won't see the game. So imagine that I could get the game recorded, and I'm going to watch the game, right? And so what am I going to do? I'm going to make sure that I don't listen to sports radio, and I don't turn on the TV so that I don't find out. And I'm going to go to my house after the game is done, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to watch this recorded game. Now imagine before I get to do that, somebody blurts out, can you believe it? The Spurs pulled it off. They they killed them at the last second, this incredible game-winning shot, can you imagine the Spurs won? Now, when I hear that, there's going to be part of me that's ticked and goes, oh man, I wanted to see that. And then there's going to be part of me that goes, can you believe it, they pulled it off, and I'm going to be excited to watch this game. Okay, now, imagine you see me sitting on the couch, and the third quarter rolls around, and they're down by ten, and imagine I'm biting my fingernails. And imagine it's late into the third quarter, they're down by 15, and I'm pacing back and forth in the room. Imagine it's the fourth quarter, and now I'm throwing pillows at the TV, and there's four seconds left in the game, they're down by five, and I turn the TV off, and I go, I can't watch this anymore. That would make no sense, right? You'd go, what are you doing? You know how this is going to turn out. You know the outcome. Right, And knowing the outcome is supposed to help me to endure through this, to hang in there, to watch it to the end. In fact, if I'm in my right mind, it's almost going to add to the excitement because I'm going to be thinking to myself, with four seconds left, how are they going to pull this off? Maybe they're going to shoot a three and get fouled and hit the foul shot and steal. I mean, the possibilities are endless because I know this thing is going to end a certain way. Right, And that's going to only fuel the excitement of me while I'm actually going through it. And it's not just sports. If you read a great book or watch a movie, it's one thing the first time around. You're sort of sitting on the edge of your seat. You're not sure how it's going to turn out. But what about the second time? The second time when you know how the story ends when you know that the good guys win and the bad guys lose, when you know that the hero triumphs and the good guy gets the girl and they ride off into the sunset, when you know that the last line of the story reads, and they lived happily ever after. When you know that, then it helps you to be able to go through whatever dark chapters come before. No matter how bad it looks, no matter how dark the chapters are before, when you know the last line is going to be, and they lived happily ever after, you can hang in there. You can stick it out. You can keep reading. You can keep going because you know the outcome. Well, the obvious connection is this. That's what God does for us in the last book of the Bible. He gives us the last book of the Bible to tell us how the story is going to end. He gives us a glimpse into the outcome so that knowing how the story is going to end, it'll help us to hang in there, to endure, to not quit, to not walk away, to not give up, but to persevere because we know how this is going to end. So the last book of the Bible is this book called The Revelation. And what it is is God giving a revelation to one of Jesus' disciples, an apostle named John. And John is writing this book, and he's writing to a bunch of Christians who are going through persecution. Now, catch that. They're going through an incredible trial for their faith. They're literally suffering for their faith. They're literally being imprisoned and executed and tortured and killed for their faith. And here's what's happening. In the first century, what history tells us is that many Christians were hanging in, enduring, Even going through martyrdom, they were sticking with Jesus. But there were a great many who bailed. That when persecution came, they walked away. They had been associated with Jesus and the church. But when the heat came, they walked away. They saved their skin and lost their soul. And it's to them and for their encouragement that John writes the book of Revelation to tell them, Listen hang in there. Don't quit. Don't give up. No matter how dark the chapters look right now, God has given us a glimpse of how the story is going to end. And that's what revelation is. Revelation is God saying, John, write this down. Let my people know that I'm going to win, that I'm going to pull this thing off, that at the end you really will read and they lived happily ever after. And because that's the case, John, tell them to hang in there, to stick it out, to endure, and to persevere. And so what we get to do today is we get to consider how this story ends. You heard the passage that Keith read for us in Revelation 21. And what we're going to do is we're going to finish this series we've been doing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ with one last word. We've been saying all along that because Jesus rose, it means this and that and this and that. Today, we want to end this series by saying, because Jesus rose, we will live forever with him. Because Jesus rose, we will live forever with him. And the passage that Keith read for us sort of gives us Holy Spirit-given permission to start dreaming about what that world will be. If I could encourage you with one thing today, it'd be this, that your pursuit this week should be to let the Holy Spirit free your mind to start daydreaming about the world that is to come. That's a righteous pursuit. That's a good activity. That's a holy thing to do, is to let your mind begin to wander about what is the world that is waiting for us. What is the age that is to come? What is this place that God has ready for us? To sort of whet your appetite for that, I want to read you a brief reflection by this pastor named Ray Ortland, to just sort of get your minds churning a bit as we think through John's picture for us in Revelation 21. Hear this reflection. Imagine a world flooded with overwhelmingly powerful happiness, a world with no painful memories for you. A world where you can drive through any part of town and you feel no negative associations with anything at all. Nothing is there to kidnap your moment and take you back into sorrow. It is a world where every new experience, every moment, only increases your joy. Imagine a world with a new you. Not only is your willpower freed from hesitation, but even your brain, your chemicals, your psychological pathways all work together to intensify your focused happiness. You never need to fear yourself. No more caution, no more restraint, nothing within you but beauty reflecting the beauty of God himself. Imagine a world with no hope of heaven because it has become heaven. All hopes are realized, all the waiting is over, no more distance, no more absence, no more discipline, nothing but the happiness of your father pouring over you in full measure. You are experiencing the fulfillment, the full fulfillment of all the promises of the Bible. The only expectation left is that his presence will keep getting better exponentially with intensity forever. Imagine a world populated by a vast number of human beings of every race, every language, every culture the various forms of dress, and humor, and music, and art, and play, and thought, all represented in the people around you. Every person fascinating, every person radiant, every person your new best friend. That, for starters, is the world where Jesus will reign. Imagine Right, And I think what, what this text, what Revelation 21, 1 through 7, is doing is giving you permission to start to imagine the world that God has for us. Imagine what that will be like. And John starts off by saying, imagine a whole new world. Imagine a new world. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now hear that. Imagine a new world, right? John's saying, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now we've hinted at this all throughout the series, but I want to say it one more time as clearly as I can. Our hope is this. When we die, the scriptures tell us we are absent from the body and present with the Lord. So the moment we die, our souls are whisked away, those of us who are in Christ, to be with God in heaven. But listen, that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is not that our souls get floated up to heaven and we stay there forever. That's just phase one. Because resurrection means that the end of the story is that Jesus, who has risen again in a body, returns. And that the dead in Christ shall rise and our souls shall be reunited with glorified bodies. And that with resurrected bodies, we who were dead in Christ will be those who inherit a new earth. The good news that we have is not just that our invisible Casper-like souls fly up to heaven the good news is that we will live in a new earth. It's not even just that we go to heaven, it's that heaven comes down to a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now you need to hear that. I've said that over and over again, and I don't mind drilling it into your mind because I don't want you to forget it. Because if you're thinking about heaven and you imagine, like the caricatures, this boring place where we chubby babies live on clouds playing harps, That's not Revelation. The the truth is, you try to act real spiritual, but there's a part of you that just loves earth. You you love mountains and trees and lakes and things you can see and food you can eat and people you can talk to. And it's real hard to get psyched up about a ghost-like place, no matter how hard you try. And Revelation is saying, don't do that. Then I saw a new earth. I saw a new earth. What do you love about this place? You love mountains? You love trees? You love music? You love culture? You love technology? You love artifacts? You love people? You love food? I saw a new earth. That, that what God is going to do is that he is going to glorify and redeem earth. That finally is going to come the time when heaven will be on earth. And earth will be heaven. There will be no more disjoint between heaven and earth, but heaven will be earth and earth will be heaven because I saw the new heavens and the new earth. That what happens to our bodies will happen to the whole creation. If you were here last week, we said this, that what happens to our bodies is we go into the ground and like a seed that's buried, it comes up glorious and transformed. That's what happened with Jesus' body. That's what's going to happen to your body. That's what's happened to the whole creation. Because the first earth is going to pass away just like our bodies passed away. But then just like our bodies were raised again, so I saw the new heaven, these new skies, these new atmospheres, and the new earth. This is the good news. I want you to hear this. That means that God is going to win in the end. Now what do I mean by that? God created this earth for his glory. That was his intention. He created this earth and he created us and he created the mountains and the trees and the birds and the bodies all for his glory. And sin came in and ruined it. But you know what it means? It means that God's not going to let sin or Satan have the last word. It's not like God's going, I had great plans for this, but you know what? Sin messed it all up. I'm going to have to throw it away and start over. God's saying, I'm going to get rid of Satan before I get rid of creation. I'm not ridding the earth. I'm going to rid him and I'm going to renew the earth, and my plans will not be thwarted. If there's one message of revelation, it's God wins. God wins. There's not an inch of the universe where God's not going to say, that's mine, and I'm redeeming it and reclaiming it as mine. He's going to throw out Satan before he throws out his creation. God wins. Imagine a new world where there is no more Satan, no more sin. In fact, that's what the verse means when it says, and in there I saw that there was no more sea. I saw this new heaven and this new earth, and there was no more sea. What does that mean? Scholars and commentators say it's not that there's no bodies of water in this new world that God has for us, but that in the book of Revelation and when the scriptures were being written to the ancient people, the sea was this place of chaos. It was this place of terror. It it was on the seas that the evil empires did their trade. In the book of Revelation, it's from the sea that the beasts come, and the dead are in the sea. Well, in the new world, there will be no more of that. No more chaos. No more Satan. No more monsters or beasts. No more death. There will be no potential for evil there. It's as if you're being restored back to the Garden of Eden, where everything's right except this time there's no serpent in the garden. There's no potential for evil. John says, imagine a new world. And imagine a world where God is present. Look at verse 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. John's saying, imagine a new world, and imagine a world where God is present. You hear what he's saying? Imagine a world where the dwelling of God is with us here, with man. Where God will be our God and we will be his people. He's saying, I saw heavenly Jerusalem, this city in heaven, built by God, not by man, come down to the new earth. And God now dwells with man. See, John uses a lot of words, but basically here's what he's saying. He's saying at the end of the story, the hero wins. At the end of the story, the good guy gets the girl. At the end of the story, the groom gets his bride. At the end of the story, God gets his people, and his people get God. John might as well have just written, And they lived happily ever after. Because that's what it is. It's it's what the whole story has been waiting for all along. For the time when finally we will be with God, and God will be with us. That's what the whole story has been about. You see, when you open the Bible... And you read, once upon a time, there was a great God, a king who made human beings in his own image and likeness and wanted to love them and dwell with them. And this God walked with man and woman in the garden. You think of that. What would it be like to take an afternoon stroll with God? That's the picture. Once upon a time, God was in the garden walking with his people. This after tea, after supper, stroll with God in the cool of the day in the garden. And then the story goes, but a serpent came in and ruined their relationship. And now man turned from God and betrayed this God and forsook this God and went away from this God. And the rest of the story is this God running after and pursuing this man to to once again redeem the day when they would be together. And you see shadows of it and glimpses of it as the story progresses. So as this man and woman has lots of kids and they become a nation, and the people of Israel are living in the wilderness, what is God saying? God says, you're in the wilderness in tents, build me a tent. Because I want to dwell where you dwell. And there's this this glimpse, this sort of shadow of God moves to town, God moves in. And so he says, build me a tabernacle. And what a humble God it is. You're going to dwell in the woods in tents. Well, build me a tent too. And so God comes to dwell. And then when that people have a land and a nation of their own, they move into their own country, Israel. Well, they build houses and palaces. And so God says, you can build me a house. And there's a temple. And God comes and it's a shadow of God with us. And and the wonder of it is this that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He can't be squeezed into anywhere. And yet there was a sense in which his presence was in one nation more than anywhere else on the world. He was in Israel. And in Israel, he was in one city more than any other city. He was in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he was in one place more than any other. He was in the temple. And even within the temple, there was one spot more than any other in the Holy of Holies. But I saw the new Jerusalem come down. That is, finally, the full presence of God will be with us. It's not going to be one spot and there's this curtain and one guy can once a year go in. It's this unmediated forever access to God. We will be with God. The dwelling of God is now with man. I mean, imagine what that is. That means no more static in your prayer life where you're really trying to press in and you've got 50 thoughts and you're trying to think about God, he's going to be right there. No more distance between God. No more, where are you, God? How do I make my way back to God? I've wandered so far. How do I get to him? He'll be right there. What will it be like to see God? Next week, we start a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, in that sermon, says this line, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Revelation is saying, that's what's coming. What will it be like when this Savior you've sung to and prayed to and fought off all unbelief and have persevered in, you'll finally see him. You'll take a stroll with him. You'll ask questions of him. You'll walk with him. You'll laugh with him in a real body that laughs in the new world. Imagine a world where God is present. And John goes on to say, not only imagine a new world, and not only imagine a world where God is present, but imagine a world where sin is absent. Look at verse 4 and following. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things known. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Imagine a world that's new. Imagine a world where God is present. Imagine a world where sin is absent, where the thing caused by sin, the tears that come with pain and heartache and loss and suffering, they're no more. Imagine That nothing that is caused by sin and the curse and the fall and the brokenness is gone. What will it be like? He says here there will be no more tears. Again in that sermon on the mount that Jesus preached pointing us to the kingdom. He said blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Are you sad in life? Hear me. Does pain fill your heart? Is life in this season hard? Are there struggles and sufferings and sickness and sadness? Is, is your heart on the brink of breaking at every moment while well, Jesus is saying to you, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And here's this. He says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you imagine that? God's not going to send an angel. He's not going to send a prophet. He's not going to send a messenger. He's not going to send a mediator or a delegate. He will wipe away the tears from the eyes of his people. He will take care of that himself. He will be the one who will comfort those who mourn. And in that place, there will be no more death, and no more mourning, and no more crying, and no more pain. There will be no more sin. You think of that. Imagine a world where there is no sin outside of you. That means no more racism, no more inequality, no more differences between us, no more conflict among us or misunderstandings or strained relationships or estranged people. There will be no misunderstandings between us, no sin outside of us. And there will be no sin within us. What will it be, dear friend, when there is no sin in you? When finally there won't be a disconnect between this is what I want to do but this is what I keep doing. Or this is what I don't want to do but this I keep doing. When finally there will be no more disconnect and what you want to do is what you will do. And what you will do will be the right thing to do. When finally there will be no disconnect between what I desire and what's right. Because what I desire will be what's right. I will do whatever I want to do and whatever I want to do will be the right thing to do because there will be no more sin. Pleasure won't be this weird word. I will have pleasure unending. You will have more pleasure than your body can contain. And it will be the right thing to do. You will pursue pleasure at every moment. And there will finally never be a disconnect between that which is right and that which is pleasurable. There will be no disconnect between what you ought to do and what you should do and do. What you do will be the right thing to do. There will be no sin in you. No more, I'm sorry, Father, for straying. No more, I'm sorry for hurting another. There will be no apologies left in heaven. There will be no death, no mourning, no grave sites, no cemeteries, no tombstones. There will be a complete absence of sin. All the old stuff is done. It's almost as if John can't positively tell you everything it's going to be. So he just at least says, let me at least tell you what it's not going to be. It's not going to be death or sin or sadness or mourning. Let me just tell you what it's not going to be. It's not going to be like life here was. It's going to be new. Behold, I'm making all things new. Imagine a world, a new world, where God is present and sin is absent. And, and not only is sin absent, imagine a world where joy is ever-increasing. I want you to catch that and don't miss that. Imagine a world where joy is ever increasing. A world where this moment was better than the last one and the next moment will be better than this one. Now hear that. Because I think when we think about the world to come, heaven, we sort of think of it as a static place. When when that dawn of the new world comes, on that first bright morning, it's going to be amazing. And we almost think it's going to be unbelievable happiness And 10 minutes in and 10,000 minutes in and 10,000 years in, it's going to be just like that, like the first moment you arrive. It's sort of like this stagnant pool with no ripples. And yet I want you to hear, what if heaven is actually a place of increasing joy? Where 10 minutes in, you're happier than you were one minute in. And and 10,000 minutes in, you're happier still. And 10,000 years in, you're happier still ever-increasing joy. Now, why would I say that? I've always thought of heaven as this sort of static place, and yet, as I read some theologians, guys like Jonathan Edwards, they talk about heaven as this ever-increasing joyful place. Let me give you one reason why that might be so. When, When we talk about heaven, we talk about getting to know God. And that's what we'll do. We'll get to know him more and more and more, better and better. We won't know all that we can know about God because God is infinite. We are finite. And so what we're going to do is we're going to need all of eternity to know him better and better, more and more, deeper and deeper, and we'll never exhaust him because God is infinite. And you know that even in your human relationships. You who have been married, the person you were married to at the altar, you know them deeper five years in, and 15 years in, and 25 years in, in a way that you know them, in a way you, you didn't even know them at the altar. If that is true with a finite other person, so that I could be married to a person, and 50 years in, be deeper in my knowledge, in my union, in my relationship with them, what will it be like to get to know the infinite God? And here's the thing. As you get to know Him more, your soul is happier in Him. And you have more joy. And as I get to know him more, I love him more. And I'm more joyful. And so the more of God I discover, the more happier my soul becomes. So that 10 billion years in, I'm happier than the moment I arrived. I mean, heaven, this new world, is the one place where tomorrow will always be better than today. And it will continue like that forever. And you need a resurrected body so that your your being can actually contain that kind of joy. Ever increasing joy. Listen, we live here in this world and we're always afraid of the next bad thing that's coming. My soul care brothers and I, we've talked about this. When, when life seems like it's going just perfect, you're sort of watching. Like when's the lightning bolt going to come? right? If you're in a season where my marriage is good, we're not fighting. The kids are good. They're obeying. Uh, The job is good. Finances are in order. I have no stress. Everything's right. The sun is shining. It's it's June. The weather's perfect. You're going, there's a cloud somewhere coming, right? Something terrible is about to happen. What will it be like in a world where tomorrow is guaranteed to be better than today? Ever-increasing joy, That heaven will be like fine wine that just gets better and better with age. Ten billion years in, we will be happier still. Imagine a world, a new world, where God is present and sin is absent and joy increases exponentially forever. And just in case you're at the place right now and your heart goes, this all is too good to be true, I think that's why God in verse 5 reminds John, write this down. And remind them that these words are trustworthy and true. In case you're right now about to zone out and go, this is a fairy tale. No way. Jesus comes to John and says, tell them, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. You see, the reason we have fairy tales is because there's something in us that is longing for the real story. A a real story where happily ever after is really true. That's what happens. A new world where God is present and sin is absent and joy increases. And this is the world that's available to you. Listen to how John ends. And this is the invitation for you. He says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He ends with an invitation and a warning. He says, listen, this is available to all who are thirsty for it. To those who are thirsty, and hear me, all of us have a thirst. We all do. We all have something that we live for that we wish could just satisfy us. In our minds, we've all got something we go, if I could just have that, then my life would really be satisfied. But the reality is what you're really longing for can't be filled here. Let me read you this quote by a man named Randy Alcorn. He says this, nothing is more often misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think that what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen television, a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. What we really want is the person we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. You know what he's saying? He's saying there's a thirst in all of us that we all go, if I could just get, and we all fill it with a bunch of stuff. And what we're doing is we're drinking from broken cisterns and dirty wells and we're lapping up toilet water hoping it'll quench the thirst. And this passage is saying to those who are thirsty, I have a spring of the water of life. Stop drinking out of the toilet bowl thinking it's going to satisfy. Your new job is a toilet bowl. That spouse is a toilet bowl. It's not going to fill what your soul was made for. Your spouse isn't a toilet bowl. I didn't say that. You were made with a thirst that only God can quench. And that's why, in the end, John says, I saw the new heavens and the new earth. And let me tell you, to those who are thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Without payment. Without payment. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's free. The gospel, the good news is this Jesus is the living water. That's what the Bible says he is. And the living water came to the earth and died on a cross, and on the cross the living water said, I thirst, so that we who were thirsty might drink of the living water. That's the exchange. The living water thirsted so that we who were thirsty might have living water free of payment. And then he ends with a warning, if you hear that, come drink of this, but as for the cowardly, as for the faithless, the detestable, and he goes on this list, There is waiting for them a lake of fire, the second death. Now remember who John has in mind. John is not just writing to the folks outside the church, the pagans who don't believe. John is writing, remember, to the the folks who are part of the church who are walking away. Remember, persecutions come, and they're bailing on Jesus. They're saving their skin and losing their soul. That's why he starts this list with, to the cowardly. That is, to the guy who turns off the TV before the, the game is done, who quits To the cowardly. And Jesus warned that there would be such. He he told a parable of folks who receive the word and it springs up real quick. But it doesn't have deep roots. So that when the sun burns with adversity, it's burned up and burned away. They were never really in. And their cowardice only proves that they never had connected with Jesus. And so he warns to those who don't endure. There is no life waiting for you. And so John says, Listen, what I'm doing is I'm giving you a glimpse of the end of the story so that you'll hang in. I'm telling you, there's a world coming, a new world coming, where God is present and sin is absent and joy increases. And that world is right at your fingertips. Press on. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't walk away. I read this story of this woman named Florence Chadwick. She was the first woman who had set a record to swim across the English Channel. And so having done that, she decided to try for another record. She was going to swim across the Pacific from the Catalina Islands to the shore of California. The date had been set, so she gets out of the boat, and there's this boat rowing beside her, and she starts swimming. Foggy, wet, rainy day. She swims and swims mile after mile after mile after mile. She's in the water swimming for 15 hours straight. And then exhaustion takes over. And she starts begging those on the boat to just take her out. And they encourage her and they say, No, press on. You can do this. You can finish. Keep going. Until finally 15 hours in, she's exhausted and they pull her into the boat. And into the boat is where she realizes she was a half a mile away. The next day she has this conference and she says, all I saw was fog. And if I, I think if I could have just seen the shore, I could have made it. And you know what John is doing in Revelation 21? He's showing you the shore. He's going, you're, you're almost there. The new world is coming. God is going to be present. Sin is going to be absent. There's going to be ever-increasing joy. You're almost there. Don't bail now. You've got half a mile left. Press on, press in. The shore is right there. And John is telling to us, let me tell you what the shore is. Then I saw the new heavens and the new earth. For the first earth and first heaven had passed away and the sea was no more. And then I saw heavenly Jerusalem come down from heaven and behold, the dwelling of God was with man. They will be his people and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and there will be no more death and no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain for the old order of things has passed away and he who is seated on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. This is trustworthy and true. John says, that's the shore. It's right in your fingertips. Don't stop. Let me end by reading you this one last quote from a man named C.S. Lewis. He writes this series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. And it's this fantasy world in which there's this amazing world and there's this great hero, this lion called Aslan. And it's almost a mirror of the Christian story because Aslan dies and rises again and his people are welcomed in. And the last book of the series is this book called The Last Battle. And in it, Aslan welcomes these folks into this new world. And Lewis describes this new world in a way that I think wets our soul for Revelation 21. Here's what he says. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would give to every man, woman, and child here, Holy Spirit-empowered, biblically-guided permission to dream, to daydream, to let the mind wander of what you have for us. That is such a holy exercise. And I pray that you would both excite and free these saints to that exercise to let the mind begin to wander and wonder what it will be like for God to be present. What will this world look like when you make it new? What will food taste like? What will music sound like? What will relationships be like? What will laughter feel like? What will it be like to walk with God and see God? What will it be like for tomorrow to be better than today? What will it be like to be free of pain and struggle and sorrow and sin? What will comfort feel like when the hand of God wipes our face and the tears are no more? Help us to imagine the world that is to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.